All right, well, as we continue today to to develop this idea that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, we come in our study of the book of Acts that hopefully everybody is doing throughout the week leading up to Sunday morning to chapter 10. And with it to this idea that this life-consuming, and that's what it is, mission of sacrificially laying down our lives to take the mercies of Jesus to the world, to lay down our lives to help people in need, and then also the message of Jesus of forgiveness and eternal life that is found only through faith in Him to this world, that mission requires us. And I want you to hear that because it's mandatory language. It requires us, by the power of the Spirit, to tear down, to dismantle, and to do away with all of the walls and barriers that stand between us and the people of this world that we're called to reach. Walls and barriers, guys, that some of us inherited, and that all of us, to some degree, have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of effort building and fortifying and are going to try to find today a way to defend. Watch that in your heart this morning. It's a very simple message today, and the message is simply this, that the mission that we're on brings people together, and not just people who already sort of naturally fit together, not just people who you already expect to see together, not just people who already want to be together, but even people who desperately don't. They don't want to be together. So it calls us to deal with our walls. It calls us to deal with our barriers and let the Spirit speak to you about those things because they reside in our hearts. They're not far from us. We don't have to go out to look for them. We stumble over them every day. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, who is the author of this amazing book that we've been studying, tells us this, and it's all important. He says in verse 1 that at Caesarea, Caesarea was a very wealthy, very big, largely Gentile, and that's very significant, port city on the Mediterranean Sea. It was the seat of the Roman governorship for all of Judea. It was the place where Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who crucified Jesus and who was still at this point in the story trying to figure out an explanation for the empty tomb, lived. At that city, there was a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius, Luke tells us, was a centurion of what was then known as the Italian cohort, which for purposes of our study very simply means this that there were all kinds of walls and barriers that stood between Peter, who we'll meet again in a second, his six Jewish Christian friends, who we'll meet again in a second, but far bigger than that, the entirety of what was then, at the time, the Jewish Christian church and him. And not just him, but everybody like him. Let's just start naming the walls. There were racial walls that stood between them. They were Jews. He was a Gentile. That's a problem. There were political walls. He was a Roman citizen, and not just a citizen, a soldier, and not just a soldier, a centurion, a commander, at least on paper, of a thousand troops. And you got to kind of get into their sandals to sort of understand the height and, and the breadth of that wall. It's a big one. It's a thick one. It's a generational one that they'd kept adding to as they went generation by generation. The Jewish people hated and resented and felt all kinds of bitterness toward not just Rome, but the soldiers of Rome, many of whom abused this people, mistreated this people, inflicted all kinds of injustices upon this people. Listen, 
You can understand this. This existed. They were separated as well, culturally, it's kind of obvious, but socially. For reasons related primarily to the dietary laws of the Jewish people, which this first century Jewish Christian church, at least at this point in the story, are still adhering to. Again, they've done this for thousands of years. It's hard to break that. For reasons related largely to that, they couldn't really hang out with a Roman or with any Gentile. They couldn't come to your house and have dinner with you because they couldn't even go into your house. You and your house and everything you touched and all of your implements and all the food that you ate, okay, you ready for this, were unclean. You were a defiled person. So I want to pause here for a second because I don't just want you to feel it from the sandals of the first century Jewish Christian brothers and sisters that we're studying. I want you to feel it now for a second from the Gentile. What would you think of a self-proclaimed God's people who looked at you, who looked at your kids, who looked at your stuff, who looked at your homes, who looked at your meals, and labeled you defiled. Just make you all warm and fuzzy, wouldn't it? You would want to go to their church, wouldn't you? You would hope that they'd become your friend. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. So what do we have thus far? Well, we have wall upon wall, barrier upon barrier, standing between this first century Jewish Christian church that we've been studying since January and learning to live life as mission from, and in reality, the entire Gentile world that Jesus, at the very beginning of this book, commanded them and us to take his gospel to. It's huge. Walls and barriers that they had built and fortified for generations, and that are about to come down. This is not a little story. And if you're a Gentile here today, this is not just a story about these guys. This is a story about us. This story echoes and reverberates to our own generation, to the proclamation of the gospel message to me and to you as well. And we need to follow their example. Walls and barriers need to come down because here's the deal. The mission brings people together and not just people who already fit together, not just people who you expect to see together, not just people who already really kind of want to hang together. Oh, no, no, no. Even people who can't stand each other. It brings those people together too. And so Luke says this, he says, At Caesarea, at this domain of the Gentiles, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was then known as the Italian cohort. And then he tells us that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God. He's a God-fearer. That's a technical term. He feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to, to the God of Israel is the idea, which again here tells us for purposes of this story that for all of the walls and barriers that did exist between this Jewish first century Christian church and this man and his whole household who we'll meet here in a second, he did at least, and they did at least, agree that the God of Israel was the true and the living God. However, he had not met Israel's Savior. He had not met Israel's Messiah. He had not met Israel's true King, who is Jesus Christ. And the point of the story is that he is not going to, that the Gentiles are not going to, that if you want to reverberate it out to our day, that we are not going to, if some walls don't come down. 
if some barriers are not removed in the heart of this man, Peter, of the six friends that he brings along with him, and ultimately of the church that he leads, this first century Christian church that was largely a Jewish church at that time, if these walls don't come down, you know, these people, us people, lots of people will not meet Christ. And it made me wonder this week, you know, like what person is out there that something in me is keeping me from proclaiming Jesus to from making His mercies and message available to you. That's how you've got to receive the story and process it. So now watch what happens. In verse 3, Luke says this. He says that about the ninth hour of the day, so now God is going to intervene. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This Gentile centurion named Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of the Lord come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror because that's what you do when an angel appears to you. And he said, what is it, Lord? Because that's probably all he could croak out at that moment. And he said to him, the angel said, your prayers and your alms have been sended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, who, as we've seen all the way through this book of Acts, has really become the preeminent apostle again in this first century, largely Jewish at this point, Christian church. For Peter is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea there in Joppa. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, all of which, no doubt, were also Gentiles. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa to find this Jewish man named Peter, from whom he and they were separated by a whole lot of really understandable, really very significant, hey, aren't you the centurion that were over the troops that crucified my grandfather kind of ways? and whom God also was preparing to meet them. This is a major intervention in the gospel movement. We read this in verse 9. It says, The next day, as these men sent by Cornelius were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, so they're about to arrive is the idea, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour, so around noon, to pray, and he became very hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, his lunch, he fell into a trance, and now he too is going to have a vision. And what is it? He saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air that were just fine for unclean, defiled Gentiles to eat, but not for him. As a Jewish man. And then there came a voice to him. And it's the voice of heaven. You understand that. The message to heaven or from heaven to him is this. It is rise, Peter, kill and eat. And notice his reaction. Peter said, by no means, Lord, which is very mild in the English. It's not so mild in the Greek. It's more like, what? Are you out of your mind, Lord? By no means, Lord, he says, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's like, look, that's fine for the unclean, defiled Gentiles to eat, but I don't have anything to do with them, which is the problem, and I don't have anything to do with this food, which really just represents them. And his point is, and I'm not about to start now, So the voice came to him a second time. 
and in a similarly direct fashion, said this, the message of heaven, what God has made clean, what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. And this happened not once, not twice, but three times. Everything with Peter happens three times, it seems. And then the thing, this sheet full of unclean animals, which really just represent all of the unclean Gentiles, was taken up at once to heaven. And since all of these unclean animals really just represent all of the unclean Gentiles, that Peter has really kind of marked a circle around for reasons that he could defend. And you'd kind of go, yeah, man, I, I get it. I mean, <laughs> I do. I, he's put a circle around and he's labeled defiled and unclean. I just want to pause here and ask you, who is that person for you? Or who are those people? Who in your family, like for whatever reason, circle unclean? Who in your office, circle unclean? Who in this city? Maybe it's a group in this city, in our country, in this world. Have you circled off and labeled unclean? And then let me ask, Again, because we're just kind of kind of rehearse this for a second. What is it exactly that makes a person clean? Does that person make himself or herself clean? Because the gospel destroys that. The gospel comes to us and says, okay, before you come to faith in Christ, there is an unmasking. <laughs> There's an unveiling. There's this big aha moment when you realize, good grief, <laughs> I've got some issues. And I am utterly unworthy of the presence or the blessing or the favor or or the acknowledgement or the anything other than the judgment of a perfectly holy God. The gospel comes to us, the cross comes to us and puts us on a level playing field. All of a sudden, all of these things that we look at in other people and it seems so horrible as opposed to us, don't seem so big anymore. Until you make that realization, you don't see your need for Jesus. When you make that realization and you see Christ, He's the most beautiful thing to you that you can ever or will ever see. And think this through as well. It's the Spirit of God who makes you alive to Jesus, who gives you that realization and then hands to you as a free gift the very faith by which you embrace Christ and by Christ are made clean. How dare we then ever look at any other person and say, you know what, I'm going to put a circle around you and a label on you. You're unclean. As though we had some hand in our becoming clean. Doesn't make any sense. See, the math doesn't add up. But our hearts wrestle with that math. We want to believe that we're inherently better. We're all broken clay pots, guys. All. We're just broken in different places. So we read this in verse 17, that while Peter was still inwardly perplexed as to what this vision of the sheet with all kinds of unclean food and whatnot that represents the unclean Gentiles that he had just seen might mean, he's still standing there kind of scratching his head going, hey, what happened? Behold, it means look. 
The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit of God, unmistakably said to him with great clarity and specificity, notice this, he says, behold, three men are looking for you, and here's what you're going to do next. It's not a suggestion. You're going to rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, which tells you that the Spirit knows that He would otherwise hesitate. No, you're going to rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, and here's why. For I have sent them to you. And Peter went with these guys, but as I said already, he didn't go alone. He took other Jewish Christian believers with him. As we learn in the next chapter, he takes six of these guys with him. Now, why does he do that? Because he's kind of getting the impression that God's about to tear some walls down, and they're not insignificant walls. They are walls that have stood for generations. They are walls that many will seek to defend. And he doesn't want to be the only witness to this when he gives his account to the church. So he takes six of his Jewish Christian brothers along for the journey. And then we read this in verse 24, that on the following day they entered Caesarea, this domain of the Gentiles, and Cornelius, this Gentile Roman centurion, was expecting them. And he had called together his Gentile relatives and his close Gentile friends, lots of Gentiles. And so when Peter entered the courtyard, is the way I think this plays out, of Cornelius' home, Cornelius met him outside of the home, I think is the idea, and he fell down at his feet and he worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am just a man. And as Peter talked with him, he then went in where? Into the forbidden home of this Gentile man named Cornelius, from whom he was separated racially, politically, socially, culturally, and you name it. A lot of other ways. And then inside of that home, Peter found many such Gentile persons gathered together. And Peter is so astounded, I think, by what God is doing here that he actually says to them out loud, get this, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with or even to visit anyone of another nation because, well, you people are defiled. You know, I mean, you're unclean from our perspective. And I don't know this, but I kind of imagine that as being like one of those inside thoughts that you have that makes it out of your mouth, and then you think, I just said that. You know, and you look around and you realize, yep, it's out here. But he's astounded and he's trying to make a point, and it's a, it's a big point. Look, these guys already knew that. He's saying, look at what's happening right now because this would not have happened yesterday. And apart from the way that God has worked here, it would not have happened at all. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with or, or even to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me something, and it's something really important and paradigm-shifting. It's huge. He has shown me that I should not call, and the next little word matters. It's the word any. It draws a circle around all of humanity. I should not call any person common or unclean, but instead, I need to wake up to the fact that this, this gospel mission that, that I'm on is a mission, well, to every kind of person, to everyone. And here's why. 
Because the blood of Christ, which is what I'm offering, which is what I'm preaching, which is what I'm clinging to, which is what has changed and made me clean, that same blood is powerful enough to clean anyone, to make anyone presentable for the glory of God, to Father God himself. And so then what does Peter do? He says, nope, sorry, because this is really going to be controversial. Hey, listen, I got the message and I'd like to help, but you don't have any idea the kind of problems this is going to cause for me as the leader of this church. You know what? As I look at your lives, guys, here's the thing. Such a mess. I I don't know. Where are we going to get the resources to help you? How are we going to retrain you? And then we got to retrain all of our people too. I mean, it's not just the walls in my heart we've got to deal with. It's a whole like generations of people that we've got to deal with. And I don't understand how we're ever going to be reconciled and, and brought into the same family of God. How are we going to make good together? And it's not what he does. He preaches the gospel to them. And notice what the Spirit does. In verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things about Jesus to them, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, which they witnessed. While Peter is preaching the gospel to these guys, the Holy Spirit fell on who? On all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, the six Jewish believers that Peter had brought along because he didn't want to be alone in this, who had come with Peter from Joppa were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were amazed because they were hearing these Gentiles speaking in tongues and extolling God in exactly the same way that Peter, that the original disciples of Jesus, at the 120 that we read about in Acts chapter 2, exactly the same way that those guys did when the Spirit had come upon them. It's a second Pentecost, but this time it's for the Gentiles. And Peter, who sees all of this, makes a declaration that's huge. He declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Here it is, just as we have. He's like, can anyone come up with an argument against what God has done here? Because if not, we're going to baptize them. And what he means by baptizing them is he's going to say we're going to give them the sign of the covenant family of God. We're going to bring them into the same family that we're in. We're going to declare them our brothers and our sisters. It's awesome. And hearing none, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to remain with them in the house of Cornelius. And, you know, like eat a pork sandwich, I guess. It's just opened up a whole new world of food to him. They asked him to stay for some days, which apparently he did. But the point of the story is what? That the mission brings people together. And not just those who fit together. And not just those who, you know, you expect to see together. And not just those who want to be together. Even those who don't. And so then what it requires of us is to tear down by the power of the Spirit, to let the Spirit do His work in us, to tear down the walls and the barriers that stand between us and certain individuals and sometimes whole groups of people, that we might be Jesus to them, that we might bring Jesus to them, 
that we might share Jesus from our lives and from our lips with them, that they might come to know Jesus the way that we do. But I'll tell you what, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for Peter. I mean, these guys walked 35 miles just to get from Joppa to Caesarea. And listen, that's the least of what they did. They got to go a whole lot farther than that in their minds. They had to go a whole lot farther than that in their hearts. And they had to give an account when this whole deal was over and then try to take that whole group of people on that same journey of tearing down walls and tearing down barriers. And that is a big deal for they opened the door for the gospel to the entire Gentile world. And yet in light of the message of the cross, where the playing field is even, that unmasks and humbles us, that is humiliating before it is exalting, and it's only exalting through Christ. How could Peter, or how could we, deem anyone else unworthy of the gospel? And in light of the message of the cross as well, which speaks to the singular worthiness of Jesus, my goodness, how can you and I treasure and value anything or anyone more then we treasure and value seeing Jesus receive the worship from the fullness of the order of His creation. Every knee bows, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in closing, I want to ask you a couple questions. One, who do you call unclean? I find the Spirit answers that pretty quick. Who in your family, you're like, yeah, yeah. Just. Who in the office, and it's, shh, shh, it's enough, thanks. Who in the neighborhood, who in the city, who in the... You know who they are. And so then what walls need to come down? Are they racial walls? Are they political walls? You know, we get all fired up about that, don't we? Put up our fists. Do battle against those people. And there are valuable things at risk. I get that. But we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of anything else. And I think sometimes the cure that we need is the one we bypass. It's Christ. So is that it? Is it pride, you know? I mean, you're worried about what your people are going to think of you if you... Side with Jesus, if you let it be known that you're one of them and you come to church and Christ makes a difference in your life and you say to somebody, hey, how can I pray for you? And you kind of out yourself and the fact that, okay, yeah, no, I'm a Christian and, and you know, what are people going to think of me and how are they going to look at me and what are they going to say about me? Well, they might think you're kind of nuts. And then when their life implodes, they'll sneak over to your house, you know, kind of like Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because they'll know that you have something that they desperately need. The wall of your pride needs to go down in favor of the eternal mission. Is it sin? In other words, when you look at your life, it doesn't look any different from the lives of anyone else around you. You know what? That's a problem. It really is. It's a problem for you and that you'll reap the reward of the same foolishness as everyone else around you. That's an issue. But it's a mission-critical issue, too. Your life, my life, look, we're not perfect, and we need to be real humble about it when we blow it. 
But we ought to be a different people. Why is the world going to ask about our Jesus if it doesn't say anything different about us? Is it ignorance? You don't know how to share your faith. You don't know what to say if somebody talks to you about Christ. And so we've got a personal evangelism class to help you with that. Is it selfishness? You know, we talk about Haiti and you want to plug your ears. You know, here comes the video. Okay, close your eyes. La, 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 la. Matt gets up and talks about people in a slum in India. And we're wanting, we want instinctively to plug our ears. And here's why. Because we don't live in a slum. Far from it. And we realize, oh, if I hear about that, I might actually have to do something about that. So we put our blinders on that allow us only to see us and go through life hoping not to see anything else because we don't really want to do anything for anyone else. That's not our Lord. Is it materialism? I was thinking about this this week. If every believer on the planet simply tithed, can you imagine the difference that that would make worldwide for bringing the mercies of Jesus to people and the message of Jesus to people? And I will submit to you that that would be the least of the difference that it would make the biggest difference it would make would be in our hearts. In our hearts, as we broke our idolatrous dependence on things, and as we raised kids that were not little materialists like us, but who trusted and who treasured Jesus. Last one I have written down, and maybe something else for you, but what about unforgiveness? I think oftentimes, you know, or maybe this is the case for you, that sometimes you're the one who's most uniquely positioned to bring Jesus to someone, but the person you're most uniquely positioned to bring Jesus to is the one who's hurt you most uniquely. It's hard, isn't it? That's a wall you want to defend, and in sympathy, I'd like to help you. But I can't. So who do you call unclean? And what walls need to come down in your heart because this mission brings down walls. It brings people together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful that um, when it came to us, you were not wearing blinders. That when our Savior entered into the world, he did not look away. We thank you that he did not come on a mission of self-preservation and personal glory, but he entered into the world having a greater appraisal of our hearts, of our minds, of our lives, of our sin than ever we have had. And we've seen quite a bit of it. And seeing it for what it really is, And love laid down his life, literally, that he might make us clean with his blood. I pray, Lord, that that message of the gospel will speak to us about all of humanity that's around us, people that we live with, people that we work with, people that we see all of the time, and even people in other places of the world. God, let us realize that we're on your mission, and your mission includes them. And help us, Lord, to treasure you above anything and everything that might otherwise interfere with that mission.
Do these things, we pray, for your glory and for the good of your kingdom in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.